Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tourists from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In this episode, I'm interviewing Scott Sherrick, an American photographer that's decided to embark on a five-year journey around the world, interacting daily with people, taking photographs, getting off the beaten path. I found Scott really interesting because he doesn't like to take the direct route. You know, this guy, after a 1,000, 12,000 kilometers, he was only a few hundred kilometers from where he started. And, you know, other people cycle halfway around the world in that type of distance. And, and here he was just a short hop from where he started. And, and that's pretty cool. Like he's just weaving in and out of towns and villages and, and interacting. And guys, sit back, enjoy the podcast, listen to his stories. They're amazing. Hey, good morning, Scott. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. It's been a long time, huh? Yeah, it's hard to tell. I lose track of time. Yeah, well, you're on a multi year tour and you don't really have to pay attention to the calendars except for your visas so what's the point right yeah exactly so you're back in india now yep back in india a little less chaotic believe it or not if you've ever been to india (laughs) really huh is bangladesh that busy it's not busy it's um the way the people crowd around you okay yeah so that much more intense and not intense in like an intimidating way but it's just like yeah, india people show up but in bangladesh it's like wow they yeah, just they really show up <laughs> okay um before we get into the newer parts of your trip why don't we talk about the journey so far i know you've covered about twelve thousand kilometers not too long ago and that's what most people do across half the world and yeah. <laughs> You're just a few steps from where you started, kind of. Yeah, when I was at 12,000 um, kilometers, I was meeting a lot of people that were going the same distance, but they came all the way from Europe to Thailand. And basically, I was just like a few hundred kilometers from where I started That's about a-, a year before. But <laughs> That's insane. Now I'm, now I'm... Above 15,000 kilometers. Okay, um, So a little bit more. But back then, yeah, my plan was always, well, I didn't, I guess I really didn't have a plan. Other than kind of a big plan, but the um, going around Southeast Asia, there was just so many great places. I would just wiggle and, you know, mm-hmm. stay and um, things that I liked, I would kind of um, try to hit. One bad thing about being on a bicycle is if there's something you want to see that's like 50 kilometers away, it's like, okay, so that's going to add days to the trip. And it's like, you know, if it's a waterfall, it's this, it's that. Mm -hmm. It's like, do I, you know, you can only see, you know, so many things. Vietnam, I had a one-year visa. You had a one-year visa for Vietnam? How'd you get that? I asked for it. Okay. And they gave it to me. And there's a long story behind that, too. I lived in Cambodia at the time for almost three years, so I was planning on going to Vietnam a few times, so I figured I'd get a one-year visa. My original plan 
I kind of started the bike ride, then I went back to the U.S. for a few weeks, and then I was going to come back and do Vietnam by motorcycle, and then come back to Cambodia, pick up my bike, and then start the bike trip. But while I was in the U.S., um, out west, I just passed so many bicycle tourists that I was getting jealous, and it was like, yeah, I can't, I can't do the motorcycle. I just got to, I have to get on my bike and start going. That's good. I mean, I guess you're also figuring, like, I'm not in a timeline. What's the, why not just do it, right? Start in Vietnam. Yeah. So you started yeah. in Vietnam, or did you ride from Cambodia to, down towards Ho Chi Minh, and then? Originally, I started in Bangkok, where I bought my bicycle, okay. uh, because Cambodia doesn't have any good touring bikes to buy. So I bought it there, rode the bike back to Cambodia, rode around Cambodia, then went to the U.S., came back. From Cambodia, I went south to Kampot. And then I went over Hatian at the very bottom of Vietnam oh, yeah. and Cambodia, uh, and then wiggled my way up through Canto, Ho Chi Minh, and all the way up to Hanoi. Nice. Do you miss Cambodia at all? I do, especially you know because of Facebook. I think I miss it more. Okay. Uh, but it also keeps you in contact. But the people, you know, um, well, right now, like a picture of. Cambodia came up on my screensaver when you said that. So I'm always reminded of Cambodia. And, you know, when you leave, even though I was there three years, it was still, um, there's always so much more that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I miss it. That's good. I mean, it's funny. It's part of life, I guess. So if you enjoyed the place you live, unless you absolutely hate the place, you're bound to miss it. I miss Malaysia. Like it was, it was just, it was home for a long time. So how long? Seven years. Seven years. So that's, wow. Yeah, yeah, that's a long time. Significant chunk of time yeah. of my expat yeah. life. How did this trip come about? Like, What was your prior long-distance touring experience? For some reason, I always liked the idea of riding bicycles long distances, and I'm not sure why. People will ask, like, you know, why, why, why do you like bike riding? And it's like, well, why do people like broccoli? I mean, we don't know why we like what we like, we just do. <laughs> And so ever since I was like early teens, I wanted to go far. Oh, so really? Wow. Early, okay. uh, early teens would have been, I followed a couple of newspaper guys from my hometown. They went on the bike centennial route across the U.S. back in 76 during the bicentennial. And they sent back news stories like every day. Mm-hmm. I was like 14, 15 years old, and I would wait every day with my grandfather outside for the paper to come so I could read you know, wow, what they did cool. and everything. And ever since then, it's like, wow, I can go across the country on a bicycle. So finally in 1990, I was able to do that, and I just planned my own route basically from my hometown, Rochester, New York, to Seattle. And my career was always, I was a respiratory therapist, mainly pediatric neonatal and transport. So I did it to raise money for the hospital, which was a nice thing to do, but it was also my way of getting the whole summer off. (laughs) I thought they'd be more inclined to give me the summer off if I was making some money for them. Smart thinking. And and that worked out. Then in 2002, I rode around Lake Ontario, but that was like 750 kilometers. My first fully supported solo trip, the first trip across the country, I actually had a friend uh, from work. She followed in my car, so all my stuff was carried. I didn't have to, like, carry things, and we didn't have to look for campsites and everything. We could just drive and then come back to the 
spot I stopped the next day. Oh, nice. So I wanted to make sure I could kind of go far, so I went around Lake Ontario. That took a week, and that was a wonderful trip. And then the next year in 2003, I finished my master's and quit my job, and I was moving to Hawaii, so I did another trip from Rochester down to Disney World. And again, to raise money for the children's hospital. And that's about that's about 2,000 kilometers or so, huh? 2,200, something like that? Yeah, probably closer to 2,500 kilometers yeah. Yeah, by the time I got done. so And that only took like 25 days, and that was fully loaded solo. Oh, you were hammering out the miles. Yeah, for some reason, that wasn't too hard. And then I moved to Cambodia 2015. Yeah, 2015. 2016, I had a stroke and ended up realizing that I need to get more healthy. Mm -hmm. And at the time in Cambodia, I wasn't riding a bike because it's so damn hot in Southeast Asia. I I would sweat just blinking. And it's like, how do these people ride bicycles? And, you know, after that little stint and being flown to Bangkok, for once I was being a patient being transported instead of for 25 years I transported patients. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was interesting. But um, so I bought a bike, a $200 uh, mountain bike. So after the stroke, you went to Bangkok for treatment, yeah? I was there in the hospital maybe a week. And then they wanted me to stay there 10 days. And It's pretty standard treatment in Cambodia. They just don't have the facilities or the uh, the knowledge base to deal with a lot of the issues. No, they, they were nice as could be. But, you know, they just they don't even have an MRI in Siem Reap. Um, I'm pretty sure they have one in Phnom Penh, but I'm not positive. And they don't have the drugs that are needed for stroke. And mm-hmm. um, So you know, I, I was very fortunate, and it was basically a kick in the ass that I need to get healthy. Okay. And so I got a bike. <laughs> I can remember, like, the first day was like 10 miles, and, oh, that was hard. And because I hadn't ridden a bike in about Since 2003? a year and a half, I think. <laughs> okay. No, yeah, I, I always had bikes like in Hawaii, and mm-hmm. I would ride, uh, but just never real long distances. And that first day, I knew I was in trouble. It's like, oh, I'm going to go someplace, and someplace far. And because now I had time, and you know, that's the thing that always prevents people is they have a job, uh, family, uh, money issues. Mm-hmm. So everybody like kind of puts it off, puts it off, and and. I learned living in the uh, working in the medical field that you know we don't live forever, and a lot of people put things off until the point that they have the time, they have the money, but then they don't have the health mm-hmm. or maybe the ambition to do the things that they wanted to. So I wanted to do it while I could. So in my head, I kind of planned. Well, I'm going to ride my bicycle from Siem Reap to Bali. And I figured I would take three months to do that. So I was riding my bike more and more, and I did some, I loaded up that cheap mountain bike mm-hmm. uh, with some panniers, and I rode around Cambodia, and um, and that thing was not made to be a touring bike. <laughs> that thing would almost bend, you know, and I did ride it all the way, like, down to Camp Pot and all the way around um, the lake, so I went to yep. Battambang and Phnom okay. Penh so, yeah, and all over. So Tanle Sap Lake, or what's called it? Tanle Sap, yeah. So, yeah, that bike took me. I did quite a few rides actually on that one, um, but then I knew I had to get a better bike and everything. So probably and, after after the stroke, I'm sure your body was really weak too, so it was really hard to get into biking again because like you probably, I'm sure it has like a massive effect on your physiology and 
Yeah, that um, that I actually did okay with. It was more the heat. The heat. Huh? So so maybe it was the stroke, and I thought it was the heat, but yeah, it was like so. I had to build up and everything, and that didn't actually take too long. I think because my whole life I would bicycle, and the most I went without bicycling since I was a kid was probably like a a year, a year and a half oh, okay. at the most, and. You know, no big tours, mm -hmm. but I would always ride and ride. And even in the winter in New York, if it was like um, 10 or 15 degrees Fahrenheit, um, I would be out on my bike if there was no ice on the road. Okay. So those middle of the winter rides, yeah, they were killers because that cold air would just freeze your lungs. Yeah. When I went back to Ottawa to do my teacher's college, I um, cycled until it hit about minus 7 Celsius. Mm -hmm. And... At that point, even with my bike shoes and shoe covers on and stuff, it was just a little bit too cold on the toes. And I said, okay, that's enough for this winter. Yeah. You, you can only do – there's limits. Uh, although I watch YouTube a lot and I see some people doing a lot worse things, and it's like, well, okay, so that's possible. Doesn't mean I have to do it, though. Yeah. So, yeah, then I was kind of planning – I actually found a bike in Phnom Penh, and luckily it turned out that it didn't come through, and it was a cheap bike anyhow, so so that worked out. But in CM Reap, I had, some people would call it unfortunate, but mm -hmm. somebody ran, ran over my foot with their SUV oh. and really, really mangled up my foot, so that put a little bit of a crimp on. One, I was going to start November of 17, I guess, around that time. That put me in my apartment for like two weeks. I couldn't walk. And I'm the kind of person that I go outside almost every single day, even if I'm sick and I don't get sick that often. Mm -hmm. You know, there's less than five days a year that I don't make it outside. Uh, for some reason, I'm busy or something like that. So that was like, oh, that killed me being stuck inside for that long. Because you just couldn't walk, huh? So to keep from being bored, I would watch YouTube, and I watched more and more videos about people riding bikes. And all of a sudden, my trip to Bali just expanded, and it's like, oh, I didn't know I could go there. Oh, that's cool. And it's like, wow, you know, I'm watching all these people and everything. And then it just turned out, I'm just going to ride my bike for years around the world. And so had it not been for that guy running over my foot, you know, maybe my trip would have been to Bali and back, and that would have been the end of it, but... So who knows? And then in March of, I try to get the years right, never, March of 18, I actually left my apartment for the last time and flew to Bangkok and picked up my bike. Nice. What kind of bike did you get? Surly Long Haul Trucker. That's one of the popular ones. Yeah, made for touring, built like a tank, it seems. So, yeah, when I got on that bike compared to my $200 Giant, it was like, wow, this is like, Driving a Cadillac, maybe more like a Hummer actually, <laughs> because it was or solid. A bus. <laughs> yeah. So, what did you have to do to make this tour possible? I mean, I imagine we generally see a lot of young people out there on the roads, bike tourists. I imagine there are older folk out there that would be interested in doing something, but they're just not sure how to go about it. How did you go about getting started and saying, "Okay, it's now or never"? For me, it just seemed very easy. I don't know why. It was just, oh, I'm going to do it, and I had a semi-plan, and I read a lot of people like on Facebook and blogs and crazy guy on a bike and things like that, and a lot of people, the amount of planning, and it's like they're almost neurotic about their planning, 
And I see that, and they worry about the littlest things. And, I, you know, you can't convey to them that it's going to be okay. Just get out and start riding your bike. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to be too too difficult. And as far as, you know, the fact that I went across the country before and down the East Coast, so I knew what it was like to, you know, be on the road for days at a time, um, weeks at a time. And I know that riding, you know, in the beginning, your body has to get used to it. Yeah. After a few days or a week, and, you know, not only your body, but your, your mind has to get used to every day I get up, I pack my bike, I ride my bike, I unpack my bike, I get up. And, you know, it's kind of like the old um, Dunkin' Donuts commercial where the sleepy guy would time to make the donuts and he would just get up every day and make the donuts except it's a little more exciting yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little more exciting than making donuts so it was just like yeah I'm gonna do this and actually <laughs> it made me laugh because after I left the US I mean I met up with a lot of people family and friends and everything when I was there and I mentioned that you know I was gonna be riding my bike continue riding it and so when I came back, I just happened to kind of mention something on Facebook. Oh, I'm going to ride my bike around the world, just kind of nonchalantly, because of what to me it wasn't a big deal. I don't know why. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the response on Facebook was, "Holy crap! Now I'm going to really have to go. <laughs> I can't back out." Everybody's I didn't know excited. that people. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I, I had no idea there would be that kind of a response from all the people I knew. So that that was kind of like. That was funny for me that, you know, I'm just, yeah, I'm going on a ride. Yeah, it might be five years. I don't care. So it was a, it was an overwhelmingly supportive response from yeah. people? Oh, uh, 100%. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. And my trips in the past, too. I've never had people, after my first trip across the U.S. in 90, somebody told me when I came back, they said, oh, so-and-so thought you would never make it. So... <laughs> That was the only negative I ever heard, and that was after the fact. Okay. But I've never heard, you know, any negatives, and maybe because people know me, and I just kind of do my thing and everything. And in 1990, yeah. there was no Facebook, so you couldn't have those people just trolling people for fun. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, what would have happened, and yeah, maybe they would have been silent in the back, just saying, "Yeah, what an idiot. He doesn't know <laughs> what he's doing." Yeah, I just do my thing, and as far as traveling and vacations, it's like I've never come back from a vacation in my life thinking, oh, thank God I'm home. My trip across the U.S. took 44 days yeah. uh, to get from Rochester to Seattle, and then I took a few weeks to drive back. My friend had to fly back to go back to work, so I rode across the country on my own, and a couple times I called and I delayed my start to work, and I had to work at, uh, back then we started at 3 p.m., so I worked 3 to 8 shift. Uh, 3 to 11 shift p.m., and I got home at 11.30 in the morning Okay. from my trip of, you know, months. <clears throat> and so I just, like, pushed it as far as I possibly, you know, I don't want to spend, if I have time off, I don't want to spend it at home. My job basically was three days a week, so a lot of people in the medical field work three 12-hour shifts. Okay. So So that gives you four days a week off. So I already have four days a week off. I don't need to be home for my vacation days. <laughs> so I would always like delay as much as I could. Yeah, I so, do. Go ahead. I do the same. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say I do the same thing. Um, every trip, I'm always coming home on the last day before work, sometimes in the morning, an yeah. hour before I start. And yeah. I have friends, they say, oh, you know, I came back on Friday after a week holiday because I wanted to relax and get on, get on de-stressed and do whatever, yeah. you know, get 
back in the routine. I was like, oh, that sounds so horrible. Like, why would you lose <laughs> two days of your vacation? I know. It's like, yeah, not me. Yeah. And a lot of people only have two days a week off normally. And, and still, you know, that's enough time to get stuff done and everything. But four days a week? Yeah, I'm not going to waste my vacation. And luckily, we use PTO, so paid time off. So it was vacation and sick time all mixed into one. Yeah, so I luckily rarely get sick. So, um, in fact, the last 11 years that I worked, I never had a sick day. Because part of the problem was I rarely get sick. And when I did, it was like convenient times. But also, I wanted all those days to be vacation. So I didn't want to waste a sick day, and that would take a day away from vacation. So, you know, I had that incentive not to use my sick days. And a lot of people would take mental health days. And, you know, um, there's always days that you don't want to go to work, whether you love your job mm -hmm. or especially if you hate your job. I always like my job. So for, like I said, the last 11 years, I just never used them because uh, traveling and vacation was more important to get as much as I could. Uh, and I was going to leave, oh, I'm going to leave on Friday, let's say. Yeah. And it was like, then I looked, it's like, well, on, on the the next step, because I already started, you know, in Bangkok. So when was I going to leave Siem Reap? And it's like, oh, July 1st is um, on a Sunday. I'll just go two days later. And it's like, I, I think of <clears throat> some people that are planning for a year or more for their trip, and it's like, yeah, they're going to leave exactly when they said they were going to leave. It's going to be a big deal. And me, it's like, yeah, I'm just going to stay here for a couple of days and enjoy CM Reap, and then I'll go. It's like, yeah. It's not like, you know, I was on a one-month trip, yeah. and a two-day delay would have been a big thing. So, yeah, and, and, and then and I just kept going. Maybe after you've quit everything and you're you're technically one foot out the door, that two days in CM Reap becomes kind of more like a vacation anyways. Yeah, yeah. A vacation from my vacation from my non-working. Exactly. Yeah, like, uh, <laughs> um, you're a pretty sociable guy. Um, how do you find cycling by yourself? Actually, I'm a very shy person. Yeah. Um, and I always have been. And I mean, I talk a lot more and meet a lot more people. And when you're on the road, you don't have too much of a choice. And no matter, even if I went on trips with people, I would always need like my alone time and I always did photography mm -hmm. and so I would say, oh, today, yeah, you guys go do it. You're, I'm going to go photograph this thing or something like that. So I don't have a problem with alone time okay. and a friend of mine who's also a bicyclist, he rides like six months a year in Asia and I asked him like, do you ever get lonely? And he said with seven billion people in the world it's kind of hard to get lonely. And that's, that's actually quite true. I mean, maybe I'm going to go to some more remote places, so I'll have some days on end where I might not see people. But, yeah, I mean, you're always, like, meeting people, stopping. And right now I'm in India, and in India many people speak English, so that's not a problem. Mm -hmm. um, so I get to converse with them. But there can be, like in Laos, there's like two, three days at a time that I never ran into somebody that spoke English. But you still have that time with people. Mm -hmm. And you're sitting there, you're eating in a little family restaurant or whatever, and people, you know, they're being nice to you. And, you know, you can just tell that it's a good interaction. 
So it's not like being out there alone. You're not, and yeah. then, of course, just because you social- can't communicate language-wise, um, there's a language yeah. barrier. It doesn't mean you're not communicating in other ways. Right? Yeah, exactly. And they smile, you smile, and you you know things are good. Um, and then also, you know, social media. So you're in contact with people back home and um, getting information. So you're always interacting. Would it be different, like? 15 years ago, 10 years ago, without social media, it very well could be. Maybe yeah, to, maybe say, the right? fe- feeling of loneliness would be um, increased. Or maybe if you had done this 10, 15 years ago, you wouldn't have that sense that you're missing something anyways because now you're so connected. We're all so connected that we yeah. don't really, we can't imagine a life anymore not connected. Yeah. And yeah. if we were to step back and do it the other way, you'd be like, oh, you couldn't imagine a life where you could just pick up <laughs> your device and all of a sudden your parents are there or your brother or your sister or whoever, you know? Yeah. yeah. Just, you know, click, click, enter, and you're communicating with whoever it is that you want to communicate with. Let's, uh, let's yeah. jump, let's jump to a couple of your stories. I liked, I really like some of your blog posts and actually most of your blog posts, your writing is really, really good. It's, it's engaging, but tell us about the $10 bill. <laughs> the $10 bill. <laughs> Uh, you had to bring that one. That, sure, that, sure that one was nobody funny. would accept it now. It's probably all wrinkled. In. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's folded. I mean, it's folded, and a lot of people won't take a folded bill. But many years ago, let's see, my son and I went to Hawaii in 2001, February of 2001. And that was my first trip to Hawaii, and that was my 50th state. So I finished that in February 2001, nice. got all 50 states. And now I've been to all of them multiple times. So we ended up going to the big island, and we wanted to see some lava. So okay. we went down the road, and we went in the dark because by the time we got there, so I didn't know the surroundings. And basically we saw some lava glowing way up in the hill. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, let's walk towards there. And I had one little flashlight. I uh, should have had more. And the flashlight ended up breaking, and uh, we had to walk back in the dark. And there was no stars, no moon. It was a cloudy night, oh, no. and the lava is black. And I had no idea, like, where the ocean was, were there trees around, and we had to wait for our eyes to adjust, and we could only go, like, almost shuffle. And it took us hours to get out. And we just had our hands, and the thing is, sometimes we would have to climb over a hill. This was all, this was not flowing lava. Okay. Uh, flowing lava was up, we didn't make it that far, because oh, okay. it was too far to walk anyhow. But we might wake, walk up a hill and not knowing that if we just went 20 feet to the right, we could have walked you know, on flat ground because we couldn't see that far. Okay. But basically, I knew where the lava was mm-hmm. in relation to where our car was. And so I knew, you know, put the lava into my back and just walk and walk. Uh, the smart thing would have been, it was warm. We could have just you know, sat on the ground and kind of snoozed until it got light. That would have been a better thing to do. Mm-hmm. But so years later, when I moved to Hawaii, so I moved in 2003, so this is probably 2004, I ended up going back to um, get pictures of the lava, and the lava was flowing more towards the ocean, so okay. it was a little bit closer. And I will say it's a little bit unnerving when you're walking and all of a sudden you look down and there's a crack between your legs with oh. lava flowing through it. And it's like, okay, it's like I need to get out of here. So on the way in, I noticed that there's a couple 
that were walking out with no flashlight. And this time I was smart. I had like three flashlights, a headlamp and a big flashlight and little mini mag. And they said that they got stuck out there with no light and everything. So I gave them uh, my smallest flashlight mm -hmm. that I had. And I told them, you know, the car, there's a lot of cars parked on the road. I had a rental car. I told them what kind. I said, if you don't find it, don't worry about it. You know, just keep the flashlight, not a big deal. So I go out and photograph the lava and everything and ended up, it was weird. There was a family uh, at the time that was a mother, two daughters, and a son. And the kids were like teenagers. Okay. And the mother just randomly asked me, can you take my two daughters back to the car? Because I was walking back which I thought was kind of weird that you're just like giving up your kids to a stranger at night <laughs> in the middle of like lava. But apparently the son wanted to keep going and the husband and smaller child already went back to the car. Okay. So I walked back with them and when I got to my car, there was my flashlight on the windshield of my car mm -hmm. with a note that said, thank you, they were from Australia, okay. and they said, oh, thank you, you saved our lives, blah, 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 and they said, here's $10, go have a beer on us. So that $10 bill has traveled with me ever since 2004, so wow. for 15 years, I've carried that as a remembrance of, <laughs> you know, me, don't do stupid things, going out lava at night with not enough flashlights, mm -hmm. and the fact that sometimes a simple act can really help somebody out, yeah, and hopefully is a good luck charm. So I kept that with me, um, like I said, since two thousand four. That's pretty cool. So I haven't had that beer yet. Uh, you still haven't. Maybe when I ride my bike, <laughs> maybe I'll be heading to Australia in a few months, and maybe I'll run into those people. Who knows? You never know, really. They might be like, "Hey." <laughs> You've had a couple incidents where I, I read your blog where you just kind of ran out of local currency and it's hard to change money. How do you survive through these situations? What do you, what do you do? What is before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the bike tour adventures sponsors. Bike tour adventures is proudly sponsored by redshift sports founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists. They've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10%. At checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Magna in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. Yeah, that's one of those things that, you know, sometimes... I think I'm okay, and I don't think ahead and everything. And I think uh, the first time it really became a problem was in Laos. And Laos, I mean, the money they have, it seems like they have a lot of money. Yeah. And I left uh, Pontsaban, which had ATMs, and I went to the next town, and then I realized, oh, I have like three or four days 
that I'm going through small villages in the mountains, so they don't have banks, they don't have ATMs, they don't have, you know, there's no way for me to get money. Yeah. And then I actually counted counted my money. Luckily, I counted it then. So I ended up, it's like, oh, I asked the guest house I was staying at, I go, oh, can I stay another day? And yeah, I need to get a ride back to Ponsabon. They said, oh, yeah, bus comes like 8.30 or something. And Oh, okay, I'll wait for the bus. And it wasn't really a bus. It was more, you know, a truck that everybody loads in the back. The and truck with the bench. Crowded and everything. Yeah, yeah. So I had no live animals, but um, a lot of bags of rice and people, and it was very crowded. And So that was probably the first time they saw, like, a Westerner in, in their bus. Um, and it was cheap, you know, it's like 80 cents or something to yeah. go back and so I went back to the ATM and, and got money, and uh, so that took another day out of my trip. But it was another experience because I got to ride with the locals and their transportation, went back to the town and got some food and mm-hmm. came back. And so that, that worked out uh, pretty good. When I came into, just like a few weeks ago, I went into Bangladesh from India and it just came out two days ago. So when I crossed the border, I was crossing from Myanmar into India, and I ran into, there were six bicyclists going in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And they weren't all together. There was a group of two, group of two, and two single people. And they just happened to meet up in India. They were riding together for a few days. And one of the guys had some money from Bangladesh. And he gave it to me. He goes, yeah, outside of Bangladesh, this money is worthless. You can't change it. So he just said, take it. Which I didn't know at the time how useful that was going to be. But I made it into Bangladesh, and it was only eight kilometers to make it to the next town. Mm -hmm. And, oh, that was a chaotic town. And I couldn't, the place that I was going to stay didn't exist. You can't always believe Google Maps or Maps Me and those things. So then I had to find a place to stay. But then none of the ATMs would accept any of my cards that I had, so I couldn't get any cash. Luckily, I had that money that the guy gave me randomly that I met in Myanmar, and I was able to eat, so that was good. And then the hotel, when I got there, ended up, I asked if there was, like, money changer in town, and they said, no, nobody, no place to change money, so the ATMs wouldn't work. I didn't have any money except... I forgot how much the guy gave me. It was probably like $10, $12 worth. Oh, wow. Nice. Um, so, yeah, so I was able to eat. But then I wasn't going to be able to pay the hotel. So luckily, I still had Indian rupee. And I forgot how much the hotel was. Like, let's say it was 1,000 taka um, in Bangladesh. So I had a like 2,000 rupee bill. And taka and rupee is kind of close. Mm-hmm. Um, and the exchange rate. So I said, well, if I give you this, uh, he said he wouldn't take Indian money, but then I said, okay, if I give you this, you just give me 500 taka back, and so you get to keep basically 500 taka for yourself, which is only like $5 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But he agreed to that. So I lined my top pocket with another 500 taka. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, I was still able to eat. And, and that's um, folded up somewhere in your wallet too now, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Those, those taka are about to fall apart. You know, those bills aren't... Uh, Bangladesh money has seen better days, let's say that. So, yeah. 
and I was never able to use uh, an ATM in Bangladesh. Uh, I, I have two uh, debit cards, and neither of them worked in any ATM. Mm. So I was able to find a money changer in yeah, the next town that I went to, uh, Rangpur. And so I had a hundred U.S. bill, and I was able to change that um, and get some money for Bangladesh. Okay. So even without, but I do. I mean, I I think about money and all the problems and not having it and finding money changers and. But then, if it comes down to it, Western Union is just about everywhere, not in the small towns and everything. But you can usually find. In every country, I've seen Western Union, okay. <clears throat> so I could always go online send and send money. myself some money through my card and pick it up at Western Union. It's good it'll idea. be expensive, but it'll give. So I <clears throat> I haven't had to resort to that yet, but maybe someday, who knows? It's um I think it's a, a challenge on a tour is to find the balance of how much money you should withdraw from a bank account each time you go because you don't want to you get you get those charges of like. Five dollars or whatever it is every time you withdraw money, or so. Yeah. Or do you yeah, have a special? Like, <laughs> do you have a special card that's like one of these travel rewards cards that gives you free free withdrawals? Yeah, I have one of my cards doesn't charge me ATM fees. Oh, nice. So I usually transfer my money to that one mm -hmm. um, to take it out. But they, there are some accounts that will actually reimburse you for charges from the actual ATM. And I keep saying I'm going to get one, but I just never did. So I do have to pay ATM charges um, from the local ATM that I'm using. Okay. And they that they add up. So yeah, you try to especially Thailand now they're like ten dollar ATM I, charge or whatever it is. Yeah, especially if you have to pay two. And the other thing is you, I mean, especially Bangladesh, I didn't want to end up with money in my hand because I didn't think I'd be able to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And I ended up with um, more money because I changed some money again because I ended up staying longer than I planned. Mm -hmm. So I had extra money, but right at the border, um, the they had like you know 15 little shacks of money changers. It's like, oh, okay. So I was, and they, you know, you lose a little bit, but it wasn't, it was kind of yeah. insignificant. And I kind of laughed because when when I came into from Myanmar to India, um, they have two borders: a local, and then they have the international crossing. And international, it's just a little bridge with a shack next to it, so it's not like this big thing or anything like that. And it was raining when I got there, and somehow um, people directed me to the right, um, the correct border crossing, and somehow I got into India. And so I cross the bridge, and oh, I go nice. to the guy. It's like, oh, he goes, oh, you want to go to Myanmar? And I said, no, I, I, I'm going to India. He said, no, you're going to Myanmar. I said, no, I've been in Myanmar for a month. I am going to India. And the guy was all confused. And so apparently sure I was in too. India and crossed the bridge from India into Myanmar. I didn't know that. And he sees me coming from India and assumes I'm going to Myanmar. And we got that all worked out and everything. But then I go to leave Bangladesh and come into India, and I couldn't find the immigration, and I passed it for like a mile. And it's like, you know, in the U.S., you, you would never be able to just like bypass immigration. 
but I had to like uh, look on Google Maps and oh, I passed it. So I had to go all the way back um, another mile. It's like, what is it with India that you can just like walk in <laughs> and accidentally? And you know, I keep walking into India without going through immigration. That's strange, yeah. And and they don't seem to care. Like you had no problems on the Bangladesh one either, going back and just saying, oh, I missed it. No, they don't even notice because it's just a building on the side of the road, uh-huh. and both sides go to that one, whether you're coming or going. And and that coming into India this time, I had to. They had to scan all my bags, so I had to take all my bags off, bring them inside. They had to go through the scanner, go back, load them up again. It was like yeah, that. That was annoying, but you know, only the first time that um, nobody's ever like checked my bags. And that was the first time I ever had them scanned and crossing any of the borders. Can you tell us about your uh, experience in India? I mean, you've basically traveled like you are some kind of VIP uh, diplomat or something. Uh, in Bangladesh? Uh, sorry, Bangladesh, yes. Yeah. Um, Bangladesh is... I had no idea um, what it was like and... It was actually very surprising to me because it's very beautiful and green and the people are wonderful. Uh, They're very nice. And when I first got into the hotel and that first night in Bangladesh, somebody knocked on my door and said, oh, the police want to talk to you. They said, oh, it's nothing. They just need to talk to you. And I thought, oh, okay, no problem. So I go and, you know, I'm in the front lobby, which is you know, just a small room with a couple of couches and the desk that the people sit behind. And all of a sudden there's like eight people around and they're all talking and they're on their phones and, you know, I'm getting a little worried. Then they're asking me questions about my trip and where am I going and where did I come in and how long am I going to be there? And then they were asking weird questions like about my photography. And they were, are you here on your own? Is anybody directing you where to go? Do you send pictures back to anybody? Are you getting paid for anything? And, you know, it was just all this stuff was going on. And, of course, you know, I crossed the border. I rode all day, had to go through immigration. So I was tired. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what? And then it's like, okay. And they were they were fine. And there was a local guy that was staying in the hotel, and he spoke English. So he was kind of helping me out, too. So then I went to my room, kind of showered, and then I wanted to go get something to eat. And the guy that spoke English was like walking with me and it's like, Oh, I already have a place picked out. I thought he was going to like show me something. He just goes and he sits with me in the restaurant. Then he gets a phone call. He goes, Oh, a a different police is going to come and talk to you here. So then in the restaurant, another cop comes and two and it's like, they're asking the same questions and everything. And Oh, okay. So then I go back to my hotel and the guy speaks English is walking with me and they knock on my door again. It's like, oh, the the supervisor of the district of police uh, wants to talk to you. So I go out, and there's all these people outside, and the supervisor like um, calls on the phone, and he talks to me, same questions. He goes, oh, okay, so tonight we put police in your hotel to be with you, and then tomorrow they will follow you. And I'm thinking... What the hell is going on here? Was it about fear, fear that you could get hurt or killed, or was it like they were worried that you're some kind of... Well, I didn't know. It's like, are they protecting me from something, or are they protecting them from me? It's like, I, I was just, you know, and literally, 
if this was a movie and you showed me sitting on the couch and all these people speaking another language and everything, um, and I don't know, not to me, but to each other and on the phone and everything, and there's like all these people and I'm sitting there and it could be, oh, this is just a friendly conversation or I could have just been arrested or this could have been a prelude to a beheading. I mean, yeah. you, you would look and you would just have no idea what, what the hell was going on. So I think at that point, it was like I was going to book out of there and, well, I'm in Bangladesh. I'm going to ride the, you know, eight kilometers back and go to India. It's like I don't know what's going on. And, I mean, if they're worried about my safety, maybe weird, I should yeah. be worried about my safety. So I fully expected in the morning to go back to India and for some reason, I had a very good night's sleep, and I was expecting to wake up and toss and turn. But then I got up to go to breakfast, and of course, they called the guy that speaks English, and he goes with me. And you know, I asked him, he was, "No, they just want you to feel comfortable and blah blah blah." And it's like, for some reason, I think I was fresh, and I just said, "Okay, I'm going to continue." And this was just after the Sri Lankan bombings, right? The recent ones. Yeah, and I think after like the second day. Well, basically, I had police escort with me the entire time that I rode through um, Bangladesh. Oh, wow. So they would go, and I have, oh, I can't even tell you how many. I got selfies with just about um, every group. But about every 10 kilometers or 15 kilometers, they would change. So in a day, I would have like, you know, six, seven, eight groups of people That's so cool. um, that would be following me. Sometimes... Uh, <laughs> The first, the first group was like they were in a truck, and when I was setting up my bike, the people, they would just gather around, and like people in India and Bangladesh yeah. do, and there was one cop that had a stick, and he was like pushing people back with a stick, and it was like, you know, I didn't know that was the first, you know, I just came out of the hotel, and that's like, you know, I wanted to tell him, no, this, don't, you know, they're okay, and down the road, somebody I think got kind of close to me. And so the guy jumped out of the truck with his stick in the air going, you know, I didn't even look around to see what he did. Other people would be just a couple guys on a motorcycle. Um, okay. Sometimes it was a truck full of people, sometimes a tuk-tuk. But and if I wanted to go to dinner, I would have to tell the hotel people, and then they would call the police, the police would come, and basically I would have a shotgun escort um, going to dinner. I saw that photo so, of the shotgun aimed at your junk. <laughs> yeah, on the tuk-tuk. They, they don't have good um, firearm handling precautions, Safety precautions? But, <laughs> yeah, but it was kind of, I mean, I walk in, and I, this one restaurant I really liked and want to eat upstairs, and so I walk upstairs behind the guy with a shotgun, and, you know, so I feel like some mafia guy or something like that going to eat. And um, one time I had five guys with three shotguns, and I went to a Chinese meal. <laughs> and one thing, I, I, I try to do certain things in countries. Like, I like to go to the movies, so I try to go to a cinema in every country right. that I can go to. And I like to get a haircut in every country. So I went to get my haircut in um, Bangladesh, and I have a picture of me, the barber, and then the guy with the shotgun sitting in the chair next to me. <laughs> so it was a little bit annoying because it kind of changed the whole way that I do things. As a photographer, I like to stop often and take pictures, and I found myself limiting 
uh, my stops because of the police. Yeah, I just subconsciously do it too. You would you wouldn't even think of it. You'd just be like, oh, it's just going to delay things, and these cops are going to interact, and they're going to ruin my shots, and they're going to. Yeah, and sometimes like the cops would get in the way with a shot, not on purpose or anything like that. You know, they were just doing their thing, and they were all nice. And I think once they rode with me and they saw my interactions with the local people and. You know, I'd stop if somebody wanted a selfie, I'd stop for them. I'd talk to people, shake hands. And so they saw that, you know, I was very local friendly and mm -hmm. I like Bangladesh. And most of them didn't speak English. But one day, I forgot where I was. I went back to, yeah, I forgot what town this was now. Uh, but the night before, like I went to the front desk and said, oh, I want dinner. And they said they could have dinner brought in. It's like, okay, okay. And then I went back and, you know, I ended up, they never brought dinner until like 9.45 at night. They go, oh, you want dinner? <sighs> it's like, no, I had a couple of cans of sardines in my bag. So I already ate, so I'm fine. And I told the police that evening that I would be leaving at 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Uh, because I was leaving later because I had to stop at a bank. You have to pay an exit fee, 500 taka, to leave the country. Okay. And you're supposed to do it at a bank before you get to the border. So that's why I had to wait for the bank to open. So I go to the desk at 10 o'clock and no police. Usually the police are there waiting for me. And so the guy calls and I said, well, I'll get all my stuff ready, take my bike down, blah, blah, blah. And like 45 minutes later, there is still no police. And I said, I'm leaving. I, I can't wait. And they're, no, no. I said, no. I said, they're not here. I told them what time last night. And so I took off. And I felt so free <laughs> for the first time. It's like, oh, my God, I'm on my own in Bangladesh without a... Uh, shotgun escort, and <laughs> when, 20 minutes later, they found me. <laughs> I was going to say, I had, this, so, I had this like mental image of you going down a hill with your on your bike with no hands, holding your hands in the air, going, I'm free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, and I had them literally like right to the edge of no man's land. They went with me, but I mean, there's many advantages because when I needed to change money, uh, the cop took me on the back of his motorbike through the busy town, and he would ask people where Money Changer was, and um, I had to buy a SIM card. So we went into the cell phone store, and we walk into a full lobby and walk in with a guy with a shotgun, and the lady punches in her little numbers, and we get number C001. It's like, okay, next, and I'm in and out in no time. Oh, that's and, good. Um, yeah, no advantages, so, huh? Yeah, so, I mean, it wasn't, and they, like I said, they were all nice. So it just gave a different story to the whole part of the trip, more, you know, something a little bit interesting. And never once um, did I feel unsafe. And for a few days, I randomly happened to go by a hospital school um, compound and mm -hmm. got invited in and talked to people, got a tour of the hospital, the school, and ended up going back to talk to them. A uh, couple of classes about my bike ride. You set up your tent too. And I think I there was a also a hurricane cyclone that was coming mm -hmm. up through India, so I decided I would rather stay there. In the cities, I felt like a prisoner because I was in my room. I'd have to. Oh, I want to go, Dad. Can I go to the store? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I got to go get my shotgun, and then then we'd go. So at the compound, they didn't have police inside. Well, they did have police inside actually. And I was able to leave the hospital area and walk through town and get some pictures and went to a wedding and, you know, walk through a village. So I had more freedom there. So it was kind of nice. Uh, but every other time um, I had police with me.
of course the police weren't with me to find immigration on the other side so I got lost like you know five minutes after I left my escorts and I was illegally in the country did you see any other cyclists in Bangladesh no I haven't seen any more cyclists since those six people that I met in Myanmar interestingly five minutes after I left them I stopped for a drink and another cyclist went by he was a guy from Poland so I was in a hurry because I had to cross the border and everything mm -hmm. uh, but we talked for a few minutes and we actually exchanged SIM cards so I gave him my Myanmar SIM and he gave me his India SIM card and so I didn't have to search for a SIM card uh, when I got to India that's good which was nice because I wasn't able to find any money <laughs> in India also I crossed the border to India ATMs won't take my money mm, and Actually, when you go to an ATM in India, a lot of times it's kind of like a neighborhood affair. Everybody crowds around you when you're putting your PIN number in. And when they go in, it's like they can't go in one person for an ATM. They go with five of their friends, like all in there joking. And you know, it's like it's like it's not like in America when people yeah. go to the ATM. So it's very interesting. Well, you know, in in, in Iran, it always blows me away too, is because they use they use cash cards a lot. They use like these bank cards. That I mean, um, my wife, her mom will give me one, and I'll just put, get her to drop money on it, and then I'll just pay them back. But when you go to buy something, you just hand the card to the teller, and you and you they say, "What's your number?" and you shout out your number, and they punch in your number to, to take out your money. And, <laughs> I'm like, why would you guys do that? That's so insecure. Somebody could steal your card. Somebody could, you know, copy it. And they're like, yeah, but nobody would. Like, this is Iran. We're, we're nice people. We don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they're honest people. So may yeah. maybe in 20 years, things will change and they'll start being secret about their code. They could, but, they could, yeah. Yeah, but we, we, we don't understand that from Western worlds. It's like, oh, you have to be secret. Yeah. But coming into India, I couldn't get any money either. And the ATM wouldn't work but luckily <laughs> some little kids on a bike they were probably like 10 years old and there were two of them on one bike and they were kind of following me around and this was a dirty border town so it's just chaotic small dirty um, and I have no place to stay in India I was warned about this by the six people on the bike that hotel is not a hotel hotel is I, a restaurant I was gonna ask you about this yeah yeah so when you see nothing but hotel signs on the street, there's no place to sleep. That Those are all restaurants. So the hotel that I thought, it was an actual hotel, actually, because I looked at the reviews on Google, um, but it was nowhere to be found. And the kids were coming with me, and it was like, you know, I need a money changer. And so I talked to a guy, and then that guy told the kids in whatever language they were speaking, um, and then they took me, but it was a Sunday, so all the money changers were closed, and the ATMs wouldn't work. And so I told the kids, I go, I need a hotel. I need someplace to sleep. So here's these 10-year-olds. I yeah. go, follow us. So I follow them, and tucked down this road is like this wonderful Western-style hotel that takes credit cards. Oh, nice. <laughs> and they have a restaurant. It's like, oh, I can sleep, I can eat. And I ended up staying two days just to, like, sort things out and get ready and um, to climb through the mountains, but and then the next day there's another ATM that was open, and that one actually allowed me to get money. So, yeah, that worked out okay. They all work out okay. What has there been any one moment that is more memorable than others that stands out in your mind? You know, I thought about this almost a year ago in Vietnam, and 
I, I have to say no. Nothing bad has happened, so nothing like bad stands out. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there's so many good things that happened that, you know, it's almost impossible. And when I was going through Vietnam, I was thinking all these wonderful experiences that I'm having, these people that I meet, and people in Vietnam really love Americans. And a lot of them speak English, and everybody is, like, so, super, super nice, and the food is fantastic. My favorite food is in Vietnam so far. But I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to have experiences like this day after day after I'm going to forget this person I'm going to forget this experience only because I'm going to have so many more piled on and piled mm -hmm. on and piled on that it just keeps going and somebody from back home asked on Facebook they go well you always post good things and um, has anything bad happened and it's like you know I had to think and other than maybe a grumpy shopkeeper or something like that I haven't had, well, we, we won't count traffic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no but people I mean, pulling in front of you. I mean, that's just a that. given when you're in Asia and um, stuff like that. Driving is not the same as Western standards by any means. So I wouldn't call that bad. That's just going with the flow. But I actually haven't had any bad experiences. They've all been good and varying levels of good. But, you know, sometimes one, one thing I really love is if a kid <laughs> will talk to me in English and their parents don't speak English. Yeah. And so the parents just look at them with like the proudest look on their face, oh, seeing their child converse with somebody in another language. Um, <laughs> you had, you wrote a post about that just, recently too, I think, right? The little kid came running up to you. Uh, yeah. That I stopped to get a drink in India and this car pulled up like next, next to it. And this kid came out, and he was, I think he was 12 years old, and he was asking me questions, and his father was in the car videotaping our conversation. And, you know, the same thing as, oh, where are you from, where are you going? And, you know, I would ask him, you know, you go to school, and we were having, you know, a short conversation. And the father, again, you know, the proud looking people were in the car and everything, and they were all smiling, and everybody was very happy. So, and children in India are very polite. Mm -hmm. um, so he says thank you and gets back in the car and I start to go and then he comes out again and he goes grandfather can I have a selfie <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had to laugh because you know a lot of Asian countries and, and Hawaii they call people uncle and auntie mm -hmm. so uncle I'm you know okay with but that was the first time anybody called me grandfather <laughs> and, and I'm only 58 so it's yeah. not like I'm yeah. that old yeah. Um, but yeah that made me laugh <laughs> What about difficult challenges? I think you've had you've had some difficulties, particularly with bicycle challenges and problems with mechanical issues. Can you expand on that a little bit and how you sorted that out and what had to go, what you had to do? <laughs> yeah, the for some reason my bike started acting up a little bit in Vietnam. I think I first noticed it. And it was basically like resistance and drag and what I thought was like in the back end. Mm -hmm. And I think I noticed after I left Hanoi going south before I went into Laos, I noticed, you know, there was some rolling hills, uh, no big climbs by any means. And I noticed I was getting more tired like at the end of the day. Yeah. And so when I look back, I think the drag and everything was probably kicking in there. Um, but then it got worse as I went on and when I started going in Vietnam 
um, towards Laos, you have to go up the mountains, mm -hmm. and but there's no place to get a bike fixed. I mean, if you have a, a one-speed <laughs> bike that's riding all over the place, guys can fix the bike, but when you have, like, derailers and all this stuff, there's, there's no bike shops that know how to fix that. So I just, like, kept going, and when I got to Laos, I mean, the mountains were... Um, I thought they were horrendous at the time, and because the drag and everything and going up the hills, the gears started slipping also. Okay. And I started breaking breaking teeth off of the the cassette in the back. And, oh wow, that's got to be like some real strain to break teeth off yeah, the cassette. Yeah. And the chain never broke, uh, which amazed me that the chain just survived and survived. But I was going up these hills, and you know, I would just scream. When the drag was intermittent, so it would come and go, and I'd be riding, and all of a sudden, it felt like somebody grabbed the back of my bike and slowed me down. And then it would almost feel like somebody would give me a push when the drag would release. Huh, weird. And I mean, this was going on forever, and nobody ever felt it. Like when I finally made it to mechanics, and they rode the bike, you know, they it was intermittent, and they would never feel it. And, but for me, it was just very frustrating, and I put it on Facebook, and of course, you get some trolls and everything. But everybody's people, a mechanic on Facebook. Yeah, some people. I mean, sincerely, they said, "Are you sure that it's not just in your head?" And you know, I would start questioning it. But it was like, on the flat road, I can generally ride my average my my comfort speed. I like going twelve miles an hour. Um, so about 20 kilometers an hour. That's a good speed that I feel good, and I'm not going too fast that I, I miss things. So I kind of like, like, you know, 11 to 13 uh, miles an hour. Okay. But I can go 15, 18, depending on the wind and the road surface and everything like that. But then when the drag kicked in, I couldn't go, sometimes I couldn't go faster than 6 miles an hour on the flat. That's 10K. And it's like, there's no way this is in my head. And sometimes, like, on a slight incline, maybe, like, two degrees or um, the grade of two, two degrees down, you know, the bike should be able to roll on its own and the bike would just stop. Okay. So, I mean, that's not in my head. This is something that's happening. So basically, you know, I would go and I would get it fixed and they would look at the hub. Oh, it's okay. And then it would come back again. And I was in Laos and I said, oh, I only have like a thousand miles to get to Bangkok where I had the bike built and I'll have it fixed there. So I finally made it, to, and it was going to be mostly flat going all the way to Bangkok. So I had some days that, you know, I would just scream. It's like, oh, I, uh, you know, what the heck is going on when the yeah. drag would happen? And I made it to Bangkok, and, you know, I told him he went through, he saw no problems, re-greased everything. And I got on the bike the next day, and it was like a brand-new bike, and I was cruising. And then, like, the next day, it's like I felt, uh, did I feel that? And I think I was hypersensitive to any sensation yeah and after like three days it was definitely the drag was back it was like oh what do i do do i go back to bangkok and i looked and i found there was a good bike shop up in chiang mai so i said well let me go to chiang mai so i go there and of course he can't find any problems with it you know he takes the hub apart he looks at everything and so basically i was stuck in chiang mai for a long time not a bad place to be stuck I know that that was the good thing. It wasn't. I mean, it was a great place, and I would go on little side trips. I had to actually end up getting five visas in 
Thailand when I was there. And so the first visa, you come in for free. Mm -hmm. Then you can get an extension for another month. Then I had to leave the country, so I rode my bike three days to Laos and three days back to Chiang Mai. And then I had that one extended, and then I had to get one last one. So I flew to Siem Reap, Cambodia, just to visit people, Okay. and then came back. Um, but every time things would be fixed, it would come back, it would come back. I would try to leave, I'd have to come back. and. Um, he kept saying that it was the weight. I had too much weight. You were using triple cats, right, in Chiang Mai? Triple cats, yeah. And they're good. They're kind of the go-to for all the cyclists. That's, uh, that's just where people... Any bike traveler that goes through um, northern Thailand knows triple cats. Um, he's the guy to go to. So he told me that, you know, well, okay, maybe I have too much weight, but I don't have as much weight as some people. But if it's the weight, it's causing something mechanical. But... Nothing ever came about like what mechanically is causing the drag. Um, maybe the weight is causing that mechanical piece, but what piece is it? So, you know, it was driving me nuts, and some people thought it was the front hub, and because my mind was like focused on the back hub, so I had the front hub replaced, and so eventually I basically <laughs> went through, and other than my uh, Brooks saddle, uh, basically everything is new on the bike. Oh, wow. And Surly even sent me a new frame uh, because we couldn't figure out what it was. And so they said, you can have any frame you want. I switched to a Troll, which actually I like better than the Long Haul Trucker because okay. it's got the mountain bike configuration. And going through some of the rough roads and construction, it just feels better on that bike than it did on the Long Haul. I was thinking, too, it could have been just like a slightly bent derailleur hanger or anything, you know, anything that would have caused the wheel to slight sit, maybe uh, even you can't even notice it, but slightly crooked yeah. would cause this friction, yeah. right? But who knows? Yeah, what, one guy, uh, Western guy that was at Triple Cats, like my first day, he goes, yeah, I had a friend that had that problem. He said there was a very small um, crack somewhere in the hub, I forgot where he said, that nobody could see. But when you started riding with weight, that crack would just kind of open up just a little bit once in a while. And just a flex. then, yeah. And so I figured, oh, change the hub and that'll take care of it. And that didn't take care of it. But another weird thing about the drag was usually at the end of the day, like the last 20, 30 kilometers, it would be fine. Okay. So that crack idea... I was thinking, well, if I'm riding all day, it's heating up, and it's probably just expanding, and then it's like the whole hub is heating up and expanding, then that would prevent the drag. So it made sense to me. But like I said, I had the um, hub replaced, and sometimes it would hit on the flat, sometimes downhill, sometimes uphill. So I'm going uphill. When I was in Laos, things were so bad that because I was missing teeth and everything, basically I had to keep the chain in the middle of the cassette and I only had the three gears in the front to change and anybody that rides a bike knows that, that yeah that, that that's not too good so I'm going up the mountains of Laos with a bike that has intermittent drag and I only have three gears instead of 30 to do it so I would have to push one once in a while and it was just very frustrating and you know I just pushed on and and then after I finally left Chiang Mai and I went through the Mayhong Sun loop, yeah. and the drag came back again, and um, that has like 35,000 feet of climbing. 
um, over a few hundred miles and very beautiful uh, but yeah the drag was back and it's like yeah I just have to have this fixed finally so that's when I finished the Mayhong Sun Loop it's like basically give me a new bike change everything and then it was okay for a while then it came back again um, in Myanmar you were down all the way to Mesut when you turned around and went back to Chiang Mai, right? Yeah, yeah. So I hopped on a bus in Mesut um, and went back to Chiang Mai, had the bike change, went back to Mesut on the bus and continued on. Uh, but then when I got to a shop in Gowati, India, I had them look at it. And the first thing they said was, well, this hub isn't made for loaded touring. And it's like, well, but that's the one everybody kept giving me. <laughs> and... So I had that replaced in Gowati, and they were, they were super nice because they didn't have the hub, and they had to order it. They said, well, if it doesn't come in time, uh, we have a shop in Siliguri that we know of, and we'll ship it to them, and then they can change it for you. And I'm in Siliguri right now, okay. but the hub did come to Gowati, so they changed it there. So, so far, the drag hasn't come back. But you can tell maybe by the sound of my voice that I don't believe it yet <laughs> because <laughs> this has been going on literally for months. Yeah. You know, at one point I was having a little, it's like, oh, I feel re like I'm going slower, but it's not the same feeling of the drag because I literally, like this drag, you know, I can like sense it. Like, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm hypersensitive yeah. and it turned out like my tires were down like, um, 20 pounds in pressure. So then I upped that. And then another time a brake was rubbing. It's like, Oh, I feel resistant, but I look and when I was having drag and everything, my average speed for the day, this is moving speed, yeah. uh, would be like eight to nine miles an hour. Okay. And now, now my average speeds are up above 11. So even though I feel this resistance, I know that it's not the drag because I can't. Um, and this is—it's all flat in India and um, Bangladesh. At the parts that I've been going through at this point, in the beginning, like the worst day of my life was like the second and third day in India because of construction and mountains and all that, riding-wise. But now it's raining outside, so I'm glad I'm not riding today. But yeah, so I think. That my problem made, and over time, you know, I was getting rid of stuff. And I look back, and I don't know how all the stuff that I got rid of actually fit in my bike, because I don't have too much room right now. And all that other stuff, you know, I was just starting, you know, getting rid of stuff to lessen the weight and everything. And I haven't weighed my stuff in a long time, so I'm not sure how much it weighs, but I know that it weighs less than it did in the beginning. I think it's a standard progression on any bike tour. I think um, weight just starts to drop slowly. Yeah, yeah. Getting rid of things that you realize, oh, I didn't need that. Yeah, it, it's funny because I put a picture of my bike a couple of times on Facebook and people would say, oh, that's too heavy. And I would ask them, oh, how heavy is it? Because you don't know what's in You don't know. I could have feathers in my bag. I mean, you really don't know. And my biggest bag is a big duffel that goes on the top of the back panniers. And that's probably my lightest bag because it has um, my sleeping bag and the sleeping pad in there okay. and then a couple of other things. Yeah. So it's, it looks big, but it's actually not that big. And if I didn't do photography, 
then I could go a hell of a lot lighter, probably even backpacking, uh, bikepacking, excuse me. Yeah. But the one single item that's the heaviest is actually my computer. And kind of good. <laughs> yeah, if I had the money, I would go for a 13-inch. Yeah. Yeah, but then you also have that big bulky charger thing. And, and you get um, stuck with, like, well, it depends. If you're doing video editing at all, you get really stuck with lag on the small. Like, I have a MacBook Air, and mm -hmm. I lag when I make a video. And Adam, he's got a MacBook Pro, and he lags with his videos, too. You know, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a little constant balance of yeah. how you do your things. Yeah, I, I look back on the days when I had a 17-inch, and I go... Oh, it was so hard to go to a 15 inch, and now it's like, oh, please give me a 13 inch. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so if I didn't do video, I could, I would be happy editing because my camera, I can, what's the word I want to say? I can transfer uh, the pictures from my camera to my iPad or my phone, and I can, you know, um, process them enough to put Facebook and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, not to sell them per se, but um, so. I could get away without a computer, and my computer, I don't use that often except if I do video, because it's a pain. I have to get out the computer, I have to get out the charger, mm -hmm. then in another bag, I have the uh, USB cord, and then in another bag, I have the hard drive, so I have to open all these bags, and it's like, I'm just too lazy to do it. So I use my iPad and my phone uh, mostly. Most of the time. Um before we go, because we're it's almost ten o'clock in the morning here. Uh, before oh. we go, is there any advice you would give the young Scott Sherrick that first rode across the United States? Um, so nineteen ninety Scott Sherrick. Yeah, I would just say keep doing what you're doing. I think I wonder what my experience would be if I went around the world back then, mm -hmm. um, because any kind of multi-year bike trip I think changes a person, and it doesn't matter how old you are. Um, but you're going to change in some way, and <clears throat> mostly uh, that's a positive way when you're doing things. And I remember when I went to Cambodia for three months. It was my second trip there. Mm -hmm. I went for three months, and I worked in intensive care units in the hospital. And I remember I went back to work, and I go, and the door is open to the ICU, and I walk in. And I swear that I just went to the bathroom and came back, even though I was gone three months. Oh, wow. Because my life changed, but everything else was the same. The patients were different, but, I mean, the same things were going on. And, I mean, we need that consistency. You know, you just can't have three souls just running around all the time and yeah. expect, you know, good things to happen <clears throat> and everything. So you need, and people like that kind of consistency. They like knowing what they're doing every day and going to work and everything. People may complain, but uh, for the most part. But for me, it was like, it was like, wow. It's like it just hit me, literally. You know, my life changed, and now I'm back to reality. So probably, even though I traveled a lot, it would be tell myself, keep traveling, keep going places, keep learning. And hopefully the stuff that I write and the videos and, stuff like that. I mean, people have made comments and everything, but hopefully I'm letting people know, like in the United States, that the world is actually a very nice place Yeah. and for a very safe place. Every place is going to have dangers, but you just have to have common sense. 
and I'm not going to Afghanistan or Pakistan or any place like that. Unfortunately, I can't go through Iran, and that really pisses me off. And because all the bicyclists that I know that have ridden around the world and went through Iran, they said their number one country for friendliness is Iran. I know I can go, but that I need a guide. You got to go on a package guide tour. So after living two weeks through Bangladesh with police, now I know having police is a whole different story. You know, people with shotguns than having a tour guide. So I found out in Bangladesh that, yeah, I can have somebody follow me and I can still live my life, whatever. So now I'm more comfortable with that aspect. So I would be even more comfortable with non-police. Well, I think, uh, I think we got to kind of end this. Um, Scott, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, talk with us. I know we've been waiting about a month back and forth for a time to match up <laughs> where we could actually talk. Yeah, we get busy. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad it happened. And uh, I look forward to keeping on following on uh, where you're traveling and what you're doing. And if you come through Canada, because I'll be moving to Canada soon, um, give me a shout. Back to Ottawa? Yeah, that's yeah. the plan. Maybe Calgary, if there's no jobs in Ottawa. We don't know yet. So, okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you, Scott. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, it was good talking to you. Good talking to you, too. Okay, enjoy Phnom Penh. Thanks. Bye. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed the show with Scott. Really fantastic guy. If you're cycling around the world and you're coming across him, definitely stop, have a conversation, listen to some of his stories. Really, he will inspire you. He'll give you ideas and just a genuinely nice guy to be around. He's, he's just one of those people that makes your day brighter by being near him. And... I hope that um, you have a safe trip, Scott. On next week's episode, I'm interviewing another American by the name of Matthew Galat. And he's a vlogger, so he's posting videos on a near daily basis online on his Jayo Nation Facebook page. And you can follow him on Instagram and whatnot at this as well. And he's riding around the world on a trike, which is pretty cool. And he's planning a massive tour. He's talking 15, 20 years. And... It's a bucket list tour, which is pretty cool in itself. So, I mean, listen in, find out his story, enjoy. Have a good week. See you then.